Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Robert Meter, an Air Force veteran, career law enforcement officer, attorney, college professor who has expertise in the Fourth Amendment law tailored to law enforcement. Bob is with us to discuss how an encounter with the police can escalate into a deadly encounter. Jack, it seems to me that when a police officer confronts a citizen, each has their own expectation of the encounter. And often those expectations are at odds and can lead to unintended consequences. Can we play a little game today and uh, work through a situation and let me ask some questions? Sure. I walk my dog around my neighborhood most mornings. We go for a couple of miles, and it's basically exercise for me. This morning, a police officer stopped his car ahead of me, stepped out, and as he approached, asked me what I was doing. I said, "Uh, obviously, officer, I'm walking my dog. He then asked me to stop and ask for ID. I told him I didn't have ID with me. I'm out walking my dog. And I'm tracking my workout on my Apple Watch, so I'm not going to stop. I need to keep moving. So, Jack... Who is right here? Do I have to stop for the officer, or can I keep on my way? You know, I have to tell you, I'm really not sure. But I would think that how the person responds, and maybe I'm getting off track here, is a little dependent on that person's background and race. Well, let's ask our uh, guest, Bob. Uh, Can the uh, officer legally detain me? Maybe, kind of, sort of, not always, but sometimes. How's that for a good start? That is. That's very good. Let me, yes. uh, let's me. let talk a minute about how we, in the court system, define the officer's rights. There's a case um, called Terry versus Ohio. It's a case out of, out of Cleveland where the facts, as I recall. And um, sometimes lawyers and judges will refer to it as the Terry stop. Am I correct in that? Yes, sir. And so... In a Terry stop, the officer does have some rights to detain a citizen. What's generally the the right of the officer there? Do you want it generally or do you want it as applied to your hypo? Let's do generally because I'm going to add some facts to our hypothetical. Yes, sir. So the officer must establish the legal doctrine of reasonable suspicion, which was created by the Terry stop prior to that courts were all over the place as to what justified a legal stop by the government i.e law enforcement so in order for law enforcement to conduct an investigative detention which is what you've initially described law enforcement must establish reasonable suspicion and there are several ways that that occurs let me stop you there and look at the big picture for a minute. So we're talking about the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which would uh, tell police that uh, they have to have a certain uh, criteria before they can stop a citizen because it would be an unreasonable search or seizure under the Fourth Amendment, correct? Right, be unlawful detention, seizure, correct. Even an investigative stop can be an unlawful uh, stop, correct? Well, 
maybe kind of sort of not always, but sometimes. I mean, an investigative stop, if it's justified from the outset, no, that would not be. It would just, it's fact dependent, and we don't have enough facts to evaluate your hypothetical. All right, let me add a few more facts. Let's say that I agree to stop, and the officer tells me he's going to pat me down, meaning that he's going to pat the outside of my clothing to determine if I have a weapon on me. What do you think, Jack? Is he allowed to do that? I th- well, my sense is for him to do that, he's got to have some reasonable suspicion. He had to have someone say, the fellow with the dog I saw with a gun. But then even that may not be reasonable suspicion because we, we just passed a law that says you can have a concealed carry without a permit. So, so far, without more, I'm thinking he can't. What do you think, Bob? I mean, are you back to the same answer? Maybe, sort of, kind of? It, it does. It, we need more facts to that. Um, and uh, I'm sure this will air after June 13th, but that law doesn't take effect to June 13th. And then the officer would have to have assumed um, at the bare minimum that John was over 21 years old. Okay. And, and that, I, that's the least of our problems with this fact pattern. And for some uh, reason, uh, the officer uh, has to have some fear for his safety or the safety of others. Uh, and that's the reason that he might want to pat down somebody to make sure that they're not a threat. Is that pretty accurate? Yes. All right. So let me add some more facts then. I refuse to consent to the pat down. But I do tell him that I have a concealed gun on me and an ankle holster uh, and that I don't have a concealed carry permit, which at this time in Ohio, I would have needed one. Bob, can this evidence be used against me in court if I'm charged? Okay, again, we, you're, you're, we have to go harken back how the officer got here. I think you're, you're going down a path without establishing the foundation. How did the officer get here? Was this a pickup run? Did he just witness you walking your dog and that's all he has? Or was there a phone call from a known caller that that indicated you were some threat? I literally just wrote an article about this out of Canton, Ohio, where a guy was waving an AK-47 down Tuscarora Street. Okay, they had multiple calls. Okay, and he actually was brandishing it when the officer got there. It ultimately was a fake gun. I'm getting off point here, but the point to your, how did the officer get here? We can't keep evaluating this step by step without going back how the officer got here. So my question to you then is, how do I as a citizen know how the officer got there? So, so far I've been giving you this scenario from my perspective, which is I'm just out walking my dog. All of a sudden I'm being faced with a pat down situation and I've admitted to a potential criminal offense. So from my perspective, I have no idea why the officer is, uh, is, has approached me, but let's talk about this for a minute. So if the stop is a proper investigative stop determined later in a court of law, then any evidence seized can be used against that person, even if that person is ultimately not convicted or accused of whatever the officer initially thought they might be doing, right? So kind of the, the fruit of the poisonous tree, it may be able to be used against a citizen. What well, would be the fruit of the fruitful tree, not the fruit of the point. poisonous tree. Yes. yes, sir. Yes. All right. So 
let's add some more facts to it because I, I do understand we don't have the officer's perspective yet. We just have my perspective. But during the time that I'm engaged with the officer, uh, more police arrive. Now my dog, sensing the threats against me, becomes aggressive towards the officers. As I'm trying to contain the dog, he's pulling me towards the officer. Guns are drawn, and the officers begin yelling at me to control my dog and to get down on the ground. My dog breaks free from me and advances on the officer who shoots the dog. And as I'm trying to grab my dog, I'm, asked, I'm also shot. Jack, do you think the police have any fault here? What bothers me is the fact that I haven't seen anything that creates real harm to the police officers outside of a dog that got away. Yeah, there can be a dog bite, but it sounds to me like we're going from potential dog bite to shot dog to you being told to get on the ground. So, yeah, I'm bothered by that. I can't put my finger on exactly why, but I guess it has to do with I don't really see eminent harm. That's it. Well, let me give uh, Bob some of the facts that he's looking for from the police perspective. The reason the officer stopped me was that I matched the general description of a person believed to have assaulted a woman, a domestic violence, basically an older white male, and the victim reported that her assailant usually carried a gun. Does that change your thoughts on the situation? Well, not with that vague description, no. Because how would you know, how would the police officer know you were carrying a gun? Under Terry versus Ohio, though, Bob, it changes everything, doesn't it? Uh, maybe. Okay. Okay. So um, let's go back to your call. Is this a known caller or is this an unknown caller? So the victim is with another police officer reporting a crime. Okay. It's in person. Okay. So um, is it the same time, space, location? Is this contemporaneous with the complaint or is this an hour later? We, we need more facts here. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate that. So the facts are that it is somewhat contemporaneous because the victim's reporting that she was assaulted and that the assailant left. Okay, so we're going to know the suspect's name. Yes. And we're gonna, going to know what he was wearing because if it just happened, she's going to, unless she's impaired or unconscious, if she's unconscious, we don't get the report. Um, if... You know, but for an extreme fact pattern, we're going to know his name. We're no direction of travel. We're going to know his clothing. So it's going to be a lot more specific than. And I've responded on many, many of of this very mirrored type call. So we're going to have a lot more information. So we have that information, but again, I didn't do it. We're, we're okay. So I'm not the person that did it. But I think that we can probably all agree that the officer is at least justified in stopping and asking me what I'm doing and who I am, right? Well, b well beyond that. If you match the description, then the officer has every right to detain you. Um, if, you're, if you are the suspect in a, in a physical assault, in this case, domestic violence, but even if it wasn't, if it was a bar fight or just an assault on the street where we're neighbors, you know, two neighbors are beefing, um, we get the description, you match the description. What what I think is lost here is that, um, not necessarily amongst two other lawyers, but the officer doesn't have to be right. The officer only has to be reasonable. And if it's same date, time, location, uh, direction of travel, fits the description, um, 
than, than the officer can detain. Now, at that point, I still think we're in investigative detention because uh, uh, at that point, the officer has to uh, get more information because in, a, in, an, in an assault, in this case a domestic assault, there's always two sides to the story. So the way you described it, you weren't bowing up, you weren't being aggressive, you weren't, so I'm going to stop and say, um, are you Mr. Schmuckatelli? And you would respond, yes or no. Can I see your ID? No. What's your name, date of birth? Um, and then I'm going to probably start there if you're not being aggressive. If you're being aggressive, um, then that changes everything. Then I'm probably going to put you in handcuffs if you're pretty aggressive and saying you got no no right to f and stop me. Who 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 the f are you? You know, I mean, context matters. It does, and and you know, compliance uh, goes mm-hmm. a long way. I'm sure, but. Uh, thinking about the fact that the officer, it, it's been reported that this person may have a gun. Would it be reasonable for the officer to bypass most of those niceties and immediately put me in cuffs for his safety? Um, maybe, maybe not, depending. I think that, uh, I think Jack brought up an excellent point about the new constitutional carry. So, under constitutional carry, um, you don't even need the, the carry concealed handgun license after June 13th, um, which is also the anniversary of Miranda. I don't know if there's intent in the legislature to do that. But Can I interrupt you for a second? Go. We love to call it constitutional carry. I'm not so sure it's constitutional, but that's the name given to it. Go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> All right, I didn't make that up. <laughs> oh, no, I know you didn't. Okay. No, no, I know you didn't, but yeah. people call it constitutional carry, suggesting that it's always constitutional to open carry a weapon. I don't know if that's true. No, that's concealed carry, not open carry. Oh, I know both. Yes. Oh, yes, I know. Sir. I know open carry is referred to as concealed carry. I'm just not ready to say that that's absolutely p- passes muster and that it can't be in some situations uh, be, be prohibited. That's all. Since you took the detour, I'll, I'll, uh, you want to, you want to know what I call it? Sure. Uh, the legislation that is, I, I don't call it constitutional carry. I call it the felon protection act. (laughs) Okay. Go ahead. (laughs) So So back to your point that the officer could be wrong, meaning that if there is a constitutional carry, uh, and the officer is thinking, well, this person matches the general description. He's not giving me his name. He's giving me a little bit of attitude, and he might be carrying okay. a gun. Okay, okay, Let, let's let's pause there. Okay, let's say that we have the report from the in-person tipster victim that, uh, or combatant potentially, not necessarily victim. We don't know yet mm-hmm. um, that 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 you assaulted this person. Okay, so at that point, I'm going to begin to investigate that. If I approach and I say, what's your name? And then you refuse to give me your name because I have enough to detain you. That in and of itself is a crime for you failing to ID. If I have reasonable suspicion to detain a suspect, that suspect under state law has to give me their um, information. Uh, up to and excluding unless it's part of the crime. So we the, we typically, they have to give name, date of birth, and address, okay, unless date of birth is part of the crime, which it wouldn't be here, which is typically underage drinking or curfew. So under that, that so then I could just arrest you just based on that. Okay. 
Well, so then if we think about this, and at this point we have an officer that has at least enough of a reasonable suspicion to stop me, possibly even put me in handcuffs, now the situation escalates. Is there any fault on the police at that point? Based on the path in which we've most recently discussed, that would be no. Um, a law enforcement officer can use a reasonable amount of force necessary to detain an individual. And in, even in this case, if um, if I said, hey, guy, what's going on? You're like, I'm walking my dog. I'm taking off. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not. You're, you're staying right here. Um, I think, you know, reasonable person is going to say, why, why am I being stopped? Okay. And the, the vast majority of these interactions today are all on body cam. So certainly if the officer, uh, if, if you would say, Hey, why am I being stopped? And, and you're not being aggressive. You're just, you're simply just standing there and say, well, we got a report that there was an incident down the road. I'm just investigating this incident. Uh, want to get two sides to every story. What happened? You're like, dude, I just left my house. And I was like, well, is your name John Gonzalez, Joe Schmuckatelli, um, Jack? Because I'm going to have that name. Okay, but then, of course, you could lie. Sure. So what? Uh, so tell us a little bit about how officers are trained, because I'm, I'm starting to pick up that um, they understand how far they can go and what the next step might be. Uh, as far as, you know, they have certain facts that they can rely on to stop a person, to put them in handcuffs, to do an investigative. So how are they trained to follow those steps? Well, I think I've laid that path. So, you know, at the point is to always try to be reasonable, be safe, always watch an individual's hands. That's what's going to kill you. It's not their feet. It's not their chest, not their face. It's always the hands. All right. So where are your hands? What are your hands doing? They're holding the leash. What's your other hand doing? You know, I, you know, that that's going to be fact based. So the officer's going to say, you know, just continue to try to investigate, watch body language, um, use uh, the old term is verbal judo, you know, trying to elicit information from you. But at the point that the individual that that's when you have to know the law and you have to <laughs> there's so much to know. There is so much to know. And so if at that point the the individual, we're going to call him a suspect at this point, refuses to give me their name, then I'm going to say, um, turn around, put your hands behind your back, you're under arrest. And then we'll figure out the domestic thing, right? And then I can unarrest you. I can just simply give you a summons. I don't have to take you to jail. But if you bow up and start to fight, well, that's going to give me greater indication that you're probably the guy that committed the assault earlier. When we see the videos that the two of you pass back and forth, um, you know, pre-today, I'm struck by a, a, a number of things. But one is really the lack of explanation by law enforcement in some of the videos. You have uh, the one gentleman that was picking up trash out in front of his apartment asking, why are you doing this? Why are you, you know, here? Uh, and I don't know if he was asking a rhetorical question, didn't matter what the answer was, but I didn't see the officer saying, okay, here's the deal. We got a call of a trespasser. I'm just here investigating it. You can be on your way in two minutes. If there's not an issue, would you please comply? Instead, it just seemed like the officer was not interested in uh, answering any questions and moving forward. And I don't know, again, if that's taught to be coy 
on the officer's standpoint? Because obviously they're investing a, investigating a crime. Well, hold on for a second. That's going too far. No, maybe hold investiga- on now. Well, oh, wait a they're minute. investigating maybe- a crime. No, they're investigating possibly a crime or maybe just a, a, an officious citizen who doesn't like the looks of the person. What do you think, Bob? <laughs> right. Again, the video is um, is a snapshot in a moment, and we need to burden ourselves with facts, which, um, to be very candid, I didn't research that case to go back further. Uh, I am not here to defend every action by every law enforcement officer. What I can tell you is every video that he sent me begins with a lack of compliance. So let's assume for sake of discussion, that the officer in every one of these videos was wrong as wrong can be. Okay, we're just going to assume that from the outset. But every one of them begins with a lack of compliance. So had they complied, we're, we're, it's not a viral video. It's just not, right? If the guy picking up trash said, man, this is a bunch of nonsense, this is a bunch of crap, and there's going to be profanity laced rang typically, and then he says, let me see some ID, I don't have my ID, um, this is F and BS. And then they said, well, listen, we got a call. You're trespassing. I need to I need to find out what's going on. Where do you live? I live right here. What's your name and address? See, that's so there's lots of what I would go back to verbal judo. You know, if we're standing outside of this building and you lived here, assuming this is a residence. Right. And your backs to the building. Right. And you're saying, well, I'm just you know, I always pick up trash. I want a clean neighborhood, what have you, whatever the situation is. I'm going to ask you your address. You know what you're going to be able to tell me? You're going to be telling me the address of the building. So there's things that could be sure. done that, that, and so what are officers trained? First off, when the suspect lies, you never let them know you're lying, that you know that they're lying. Okay. That's, that's, that's one thing. Um, How much information are officers told to give a person that they are in the uh, original process of detaining them. Right, well, you should you should say, you should identify yourself. Hi, I'm Officer Meter uh, with Columbus Division Police. I stopped you here because uh, we got a call that there was uh, an incident down the road. I may not say assault because that puts the person on the defensive. What if, that, what if they were just defending themselves, right? That, that could potentially happen. So I would say there's an incident down the road. Um, your, your description was given, so, um, What's your name? Could you have some ID? Um, let me, you know, what? And, but some of that's going to be fact-based. Like, what, what's your what's your physical demeanor? How much clothes are you wearing? Are you overdressed? You know, if you're wearing, a, you know, a hoodie and sweatpants on a warm day today, that's going to be in the mid to high 70s. That's going to be an indicator. Why do you have such heavy clothes on? <laughs> I, I, I have to imagine yeah. that my partner, Doror, is going to say that's highly subjective and may lead to the wrong conclusions pretty quick, which is get up against the wall, put your hands behind your back. Right. No, I, I'm saying it's an indicator. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that you take any one factor and that's what you build it on. As you both know, even if you've not practiced criminal law, there's a there's there's a term of art called totality of the circumstances. So certainly, an overdressed somebody if somebody overdressed in the in the warm months, I'm gonna it's gonna be a, a factor, okay? But that it exclusively is not going to be it, okay? That's not going to be. Let me get let me talk about this compliance issue for a minute. Because that's one side of the coin, and it's hard to argue with you. If this gentleman we were talking about, who, his name is Zaid Atkins, 
I forget what college university it was. If he had just said, okay, I'm Zayad Atkins and I reside at 2 South High Street, wouldn't be a video. But I think the other side of the coin is he's black. Now that, and oh, let me back up for a second. We don't have all the facts with all the videos I sent you. So that's a noted disadvantage in having a full discussion. Having said that, he's black. So more than likely, according to the comments I've seen from sportscasters, athletic directors, and just friends of mine, blacks get jacked more often than cop, than white people. I mean, I've never been stopped unnecessarily by a police officer, but I bet a guy my age, black, has been. So he's more sensitive. Now, it seems to me that the police officer also has some obligation here, which is, am I stopping this guy just because somebody thought he didn't look like he belonged here? Regardless, shouldn't I be aware that he's going to be a little more defensive than Gonzo and I would be? My point is this. I don't like to see the escalation, and I'm not always, and yes, the citizen has an obligation, but I'm seeing a number of videos where the cops are also not saying, okay, what's the best play here, as opposed to me just exerting dominance, because the dominance often leads to somebody getting shot. Respond to that. Well, I think that's a gross overstatement. The, the response okay. isn't overwhelmingly that people get shot. That's a, that's, a, that's, that's a high overstatement. Well, let's put it this, okay, let's back it down a little. There are times when guns are drawn and there's more force used than necessary. I'll take back, that was probably too strong of a statement, but there's more force ne needed than necessary. There's no, more force used than necessary. Okay. Well, I, I will answer all those in step. Okay. So okay. first off, uh, I'll begin uh, with the end, then go back to the being, and then hit the middle. So okay. the first part, the end is uh, the, the legal standard isn't necessary. It's reasonable. We'll begin there. The first part you said about, well, what's the real reason he's being stopped? Is he black? Well, we're at the community meeting where they had a rash of break-ins and there's been a lot of homeless people in the area and break-ins in the cars and the most recent and the officer was at the most recent community meeting so he his antennas up over the car break-ins okay? okay so and and I'm 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 pouring facts in again that we sure. don't know but but we have to look at this from the full perspective when it comes to race mm -hmm. and and stops um, we can always look at individual stops and then and then work it backwards and say, well, what was the real reason that that person was stopped? Um, I think that to, to have that conversation, we can go down that path, and, I'm, and I've brought some statistics with me, but um, the, the uncomfortable fact is that blacks commit a higher crime rate than do whites. So when you look at um, the way you would distribute uh, law enforcement officers in a city, and I'm very familiar with Columbus, and I'm tangentially familiar with other cities. How would you distribute law enforcement officers? What would be the reasonable way, if you were the chief of police, you have Columbus, Ohio, roughly around 226 square miles, about five miles of it is water. How do you distribute your 1,900 officers? Or you'd put them in the higher crime areas. 
where you have higher number higher numbers of calls for service. Correct. Yes. And where are those areas? Inner city. Inner city. We've seen the predominant. map. You've all, we've all seen the maps, right. right? So why, so, and I can tell you, have you ever been to a community meeting in Linden? No. Me either. Hilltop? No. Near East Side? No, sir. I've been to all those. Been okay. in 30, 31 years I spent with the division. And I can tell you, and I've listened to other podcasts that you have put out, you, you know what you never hear at those community meetings? We're over-policed. Quite the opposite. Bob, I got to tell you, you're getting off subject. No, it goes exactly to what your question was about race. No offense so, when I said that, by the way, but I think you're getting off subject. Well, I think, okay, well, um, we'll agree to disagree there. But the bottom line is there's more officers in the inner city in the, where there are um, a higher number of minorities. Um, and you go to the community meetings and they're like, we want the, we, we want the, the people off the corners. They're the ones that are that are jumping people this we have gunshots constantly this is i'm not going to disagree with any of that okay but that goes right to the heart of your question i don't know if it does let's go back to this question Uh, so as far as training of police officers what are they taught with regard to approaching somebody in a community that is a minority african-american is there some special awareness that they're taught to to be a you would think so but you tell me um, the officers are trained, drilled, and drilled, and drilled that you always go off behavior. It's never about skin color, ever, or sex, for that matter. It's always about the behavior of the person, and that will change that person from being a person to a suspect, and it's always about the behavior, not about race. That um, brings to mind one of the videos that you sent that was very disturbing, and again, it just in general, it was the... They were, the officers were in a room, looked like a bedroom in a... Uh, Louisville, Kentucky video. Black oh, yeah. gentleman took right. his shirt off. Not a gentleman. Uh, the black person <laughs> took his shirt off and um, was very cooperative, right? His actions were very non-threatening, and then he pulled a gun out and um, and started shooting. So I think that, that um, illustrates your point that the officers can be fooled sometimes, too, by a person's behavior. So they need to be uh, vigilant. Right. To that point on that video, when a suspect takes off a shirt, that's a pre-fight indicator, typically. It's a what? Pre-fight indicator. Oh, is it really? Yes. I never thought of that. So if you gentlemen start taking your shirts off, we're gonna, <laughs> I'm going to call that a pre-fight indicator. So, yes, he did that, but he was playing, he was, he was playing possum with the – and the officer shouldn't have let him wander around the bedroom like that. The, uh, the female victim, uh, it was a domestic disturbance – not us, uh, violence. She said he has a gun in there. She wanted him to leave. He was going to leave. He just wanted to grab a few clothes. Bad officer safety to let him mess around in the bedroom. The officer got shot. He got shot in the vest. A suspect uh, was shot and killed. Um, and the officers were just trying to uh, facilitate him leaving. They weren't, if you watch the video, they weren't aggressive um, until he pulled the gun. Then, of course, they got highly aggressive. But In a similar video was the one in the uh, hallway, looked like an apartment complex where the officer was confronted with a gun and mm. was backing up, backing up, backing up. Oklahoma and, City. Oklahoma. I don't know how that ended, but uh, at least the video ended where um, the officer, there were shots fired, but the officer was safe. Uh, do you know how that uh, ended? Yeah, the suspect was ultimately captured. I don't remember. The officer did get off one shot. I don't remember if he was shot or not, the suspect. Um, he was ultimately captured. 
<clears throat> I don't. I've got a couple questions, but let me preface. Uh, I might be asking you hard questions, but I don't mean to minimize the danger police officers face. And some of those videos you sent me were staggering. So uh, it's not a matter of having no empathy for the plight of the police officers, for goodness sake. I want to take issue with something you said, though. You said police officers are trained not to let race be a factor in their decision-making. Fair statement? That is correct. I'm sure that's taught. I mean, I haven't gone through the classes, but I'd bet lunch at Lindy's, that's taught. But here's the problem. I'm not sure that that controls the subconscious mind. And let me tell you what I mean by that. New York had a, a statute on the books. Basically, it codified the Terry stop. I can't get much more detailed than that, but it was the stop and frisk. So in New York City, or maybe it was the whole state, I can't recall. No, it was New York City. Stopped 4.4 million people over eight years. 52% were black. 10% were white. But of course, blacks made up a smaller percentage of the population than whites. Which group was found to have more weapons and other contraband? Whites. But yet more blacks are getting stopped. What I get from that is subconscious takes over and maybe they're being stopped more often. We've also seen that famous video from Philadelphia, two black gents walk into a Starbucks, sit down, don't do anything. Somebody calls the police, police come in and for whatever reason they escort these gents in. Now, I'm positive I could go to that Starbucks and sit down for a couple hours. Nothing's going to happen. I don't mean to be criticizing the police in general, but I'm hesitant to say, I'm hesitant to conclude, and this is all intuitive, not on the basis of empirical evidence. I'm hesitant to say it's just a few bad apples as opposed to not overcoming the inherent racism that a lot of people have on a subconscious base, basis, and I don't think that's, in my sense is, that's not being addressed. Okay. Let me, let me take both of those in turn. Okay. So first off, the first uh, case out of New York, that actually resulted in a uh, federal district court. Uh, Sharia was the federal judge, I believe, and uh, resulted in a case called Floyd, actually, of, okay. of all names. Right. And um, that came, that was decided well before George Floyd. Right. So that was... No relation, by the way. Yeah, I didn't check that, but okay. Um, but that was unconstitutional policing. What actually occurred there was the uh, some of New York uh, law enforcement brass um, determined... Uh, work product by how many Terry stops they were doing. They had actually had a form, which I call a Terry stop by checkbox, which is not constitutional. And one of the checkboxes was um, clothing. Um, so, you know, what, what kind of clothing are they wearing in New York between November and Easter? I don't know, heavy clothes, right? So does that mean I could stop everyone with heavy clothes? Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going against what I said earlier. Clothing certainly can be a factor, but it, it was a checkbox and said, well, if they have 
um, the wrong clothing, then you could stop. I mean, that's, it that's was automatic criteria. It was, in it was unconstitutional policing. So the Terry stop is valid. You cannot pervert any legal doctrine and then blame the doctrine. So I, I didn't mean to do that. No, you didn't way. do that. But okay. I'm just I'm making that as a as okay. a statement. It's not the Terry stop. Terry stops valid. What's invalid is when you pervert it, and that's what happened in that in in those stops. Well, you're you're gonna and there's a lot of stats out of that out of that uh, federal court case, and um, I can't refute them. But but you cannot stop people based on the color of their skin, or their being that they're in a high crime area. But my no. point my point was only that the majority of the people being stopped were black, but yet they didn't have as high of a contraband possession rate as the white folks. That's my only point out of all that. Right, but if if all stops are unconstitutional at their start, I think that we could just eviscerate all the stats at the end of the day. If if, If it begins as a flawed analysis, then why would we continue to use that? Why don't we go back and look at at at, at constitutional stops, and I'm not saying that um, I'm not I'm not saying that we're going to find that blacks carry more weapons or have more contraband. But what is what, what is irrefutable is that um, blacks commit a higher rate of crime. Young male blacks, male young and male blacks commit higher crime rate than do all other demographics. Well, I'm I, I'm not going to argue that one way or another. I have the stats here to demonstrate that. No, no, but that. that's, Bob, that's not my point. I mean, I'm going to assume you're correct, but in a situation where we are dealing with whites and blacks in the same area, I'm just saying it seems to me that there's this subconscious attraction to assuming the black should be investigated more so than whites, which is what the New York case tells us. Well, once again, the New York case was unconstitutional from the start. So I understand that, right? But, but we have to go back based on behavior—the the actual behavior of the suspect in the moment. And um, I don't know how you get around the fact that they were stopping more blacks and whites and coming up with less contraband. Well, let's take this back to education. Um, you educate police officers uh, as a part of, um, of what you do, right? Yes, sir. And so when we think about it for a minute, and uh, Jack knows this, I give seminars on legal ethics to lawyers. And what I like to do is take cases where lawyers have done something wrong, according to our Supreme Court, and educate my students on what not to do because other lawyers have done it wrong. Does that play a role in how you educate uh, law enforcement? Uh, specifically with respect to this either real or perceived racism? Yeah, well, yes to the first part. Um, not I don't really foc- I don't focus on the race. I always focus on the appellate court decisions. So for our for your listeners, there's 12 appellate courts in the state of Ohio and I cover those cases. I cover Sixth Circuit, which is Michigan, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Ohio. and of course US Supreme and Supreme Court of Ohio. So wherever the race falls on those cases, they fall. But I train officers when a law enforcement professional makes an error and it resets the uh, landscape of what we can and cannot do. When I say we, I'm now retired. But uh, what officers do, can and cannot do. And then um, so I will cover both sides to that, certainly, absolutely. Uh, What the court says, that was a good law enforcement stop and what, what wasn't. 
Bob, do you also teach uh, law enforcement to uh, de-escalate, to recognize that certain things may trigger an escalation in the encounter and that uh, de-escalating may make sense in light of the severity of whatever is being investigated? I think I, I would like to say all, but certainly in my travels, and I travel all over the state, um, that is inherent in all law enforcement training is de-escalation. Uh, when I oversaw our academy uh, at Columbus, uh, I would ask for our de-escalation training. I can never give that because it's it's embedded in all of our training. Um, it, it's just it, it and uh, Jack actually had an opportunity to witness some of that. That was the actual scenarios part, not necessarily classroom, but that's all part of it. It's about de-escalation and not. I mean, officers don't want to use force. I mean, certainly it could cost them. I mean, at, you know, can cost lives, can cost citizens' lives, suspects' lives, officer lives. Um, and so de-escalation is embedded in it, but there's not a class on de-escalation. So what we talk about in an appellate case, when the way I train, is, okay, what are some other options that could have occurred here? When you see the escalation, what occurs to me, being a non-law enforcement person, is that fear enters the situation because, as one of my law enforcement friends told me, every time I'm in a tussle, there's a gun involved because I'm carrying it and the suspect's not going to get it. And when you watch these videos and how they escalate, it seems to me that the fear takes over and there's no turning back. Uh, the officer is now in a position where he or she has to protect their own lives uh, and maybe the lives of other people because, again, a gun is involved in almost every one of these incidents by the virtue of the fact that the police officer is at least the one person carrying a gun. Um, and I don't know if you can somehow teach a person in that moment to do something different. Can you? Well, what we ran at Columbus, which still continues today, is high-stress training. So we want to teach them what their um, uh, what it's like to have that epinephrine dump, you know, the fight-or-flight syndrome and how to control that. So it's a stress-based academy. And I think that that um, can be demonstrated throughout. Uh, um, you look at incident after incident. Uh, again, we're human beings, and there's officers that are just going to make mistakes because we're humans. But overwhelmingly, um, law enforcement responds appropriately. Yeah, and I don't see that you're hesitant to criticize a poor decision or incompetency of a police officer. I have to imagine as a teacher that that's probably pretty good teaching material to show somebody doing something wrong, um, you know, to, to, to show how to do it right. Um, what occurs to me in our discussion and looking at the videos is that many people don't understand non-law enforcement, what their rights are, or what their, more appropriately, what their obligation is when a police officer approaches them. You know, we think that we're in America the government needs to leave us alone, cannot intrude on our personal space. And that's really just not true, is it? Well, I mean, when there you, are when times. You're, when you're talking about a police officer approaching a person, sure. they have some obligation, don't they? Right. We've talked a lot about rights, and mm -hmm. I appreciate you bringing up the word obligation. So what is, let's 
tell people, what is your obligation if a police officer approaches you? I would say always comply if you're in a consensual encounter. Well, no matter what the encounter, you can ask the officer. Uh, the best thing is to comply, get out of the car, put your hands behind your back, submit to the search. Let's say that, again, going back, if the officer's wrong, that's all going to come out. And potentially um, the officer, um, i.e. the agency, is going to um, um, be recompense you for your unlawful stop, search, uh, use of force. But what? But oftentimes, um, you know, if we take a step back out of law enforcement, uh, we're going to disagree today. We've already disagreed some, and that's that's healthy, frankly. But could we all agree that we live in a more adversarial society today than we did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Sure, I'd agree. And and you look at what's going on with the airlines. Um, most recently, I tracked oh, yeah. body cam camera um, trends. And uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, there's no Woolworths left in Ohio. But Woolworths have have outfitted their their clerks with body cams. Why? Adversarial encounters with customers. And what are the clerks saying? It's not me. It's the customer. And so um, the Mahoning County, which is Youngstown area, their dog warden body cam. Um, I've been predicting for years, uh, about two years now, that EMS is next. In England, they're in one area. They're outfitting their EMTs with pair, with body cameras. We live in a more adversarial society, and um, so I appreciate you bringing that up. Just so again, let's assume the officer's wrong from the outset. There's there's ways to combat that. As lawyers, you know that in court, we'll be able to get the evidence you know dismissed or the charges dismissed. We can we can sue the agency, but overwhelmingly. If the person would just comply, we you wouldn't have neither of us would have a host of videos to review if they'd have just complied. There's no getting around that. Um, let me run another scenario by you because I must be missing something. And again, it's one of the videos that I sent around. We don't have all the pre-video facts, so that's a dis disadvantage. We have a black man getting pulled over by a police officer. His name is Patrick Loya, L-Y-O-Y-A. I think it was in Grand Rapids. He gets out of the car upon direction, I think, from the police officer. I don't think he got out voluntarily. I could be wrong. But in any case, he's out of the car. Police officer is asking him questions. And then the driver bolts. Police, police officer chases him, ultimately tackles him, shoots him in the back of the head. Okay, I don't know why he was pulled over. I think it was a traffic stop. Maybe there was some felony concern. I don't know. Assuming, well, I, I guess it's, I don't want to say assuming anything. The fact that he takes off, I'm thinking, let the guy take off. You've got his car, right? you're probably gonna be able to track them down. Track them down in a more controlled environment. Why even pursue them? What am I missing? Well, I mean, so based on that ideology, what, would you just let everyone that ran from the police run? Well, perhaps, and that may sound silly to somebody like you, but certainly there's a difference between stopping El Chapo on Main Street and him running away. And there's a difference between 
stopping a driver who runs away for whatever reason. And I'm wondering that if we shouldn't be making greater effort to think really what's at stake here, how much of a, how much do I want to control this situation and for what reason? Well, uh, by the way, did you know, I assume you know who I meant when I said El Chapo. I'm trying to convey the degree of danger here, right? Is he a a drug dealer from Mexico? Yeah, okay, we're on the same page. Is he the one that dug out of the prison? Yeah, he dug out of the prison, yeah. Yeah. Um, So I would have to find the right words to even respond to this. But um, so if if, if you don't want law enforcement to chase, then... Then, then write the law that way. We are law enforcement. We were sworn to uphold the Constitution. We've taken an oath to uphold every city ordinance. And if uh, Patrick L. ends up taking off, I'm chasing him too. I had that very same fact pattern happen. I had a really strange stop at, uh, at the corner of High Street and 4th Street back when I, my hair was one color a long time ago. It was middle of winter. I stopped the car in suspicion of impaired driving. I was correct, and the off uh, the, the the driver walks back to me, holds his extends his arm out with a set of keys, gives me the keys, and then runs. Um, I chased him, tackled him, we fought, um, and then because it was literally around zero, I got winded. You know, just hard to breathe when you're trying to. And plus, I'm wrapped up like the Michelin Man, and um, just waited for backup. We were able to put him in handcuffs and. It was a minimal amount of force. But the point being is that if you want law enforcement to stop chasing, then write the law. But until then, um, we're going to chase. And we don't know what else this man was involved in. Why is he running? Is he running simply because he ran the stop sign? Typically, people don't do that. Well, well the, the, <laughs> this is a tough scenario because it's at the outer edges of what, of what you know we don't want to happen. But... There's probably very few things that he did that were going to warrant the death penalty, which is what he got on the spot. And again, I keep going back to the training police officers have, because again, maybe it's just inevitable. Once it gets to the point where the officer is pulling a gun, you you can't train that out of an officer. But it seems to me to be a tragedy that, like Jack said, the guy dies at the scene as opposed to letting him run away to be caught another day and, and everybody is better off. Um, but yeah. I don't don't know if it's just yeah, the I, circumstance I, in that particular one, but it seems like it happens more than we want. Yeah, and I certainly don't mean to suggest we shouldn't be arresting criminals, for goodness sake. I mean, that's the extreme. But I'm wondering if there isn't a smarter way to pursue some of these situations, get them at another time in a safer and more controlled environment. That's all I'm suggesting. And I'm, my guess is, again, it's a guess, that police officers are trained not to give up and to pursue and to take control irrespective of what's really going on. Well, I wouldn't say irrespective of what's going on. It would be in light of what's going on. Um, so how do you write that? How do you write that um, rule for the agency? When do you let them run? When do you not let them run? Well, we did it with cha- with we, we the law enforcement agencies did it with 
in term, I'm not very articulate. Forgive no, but you're me. talking about high-speed chases. High-speed chases, yeah. They wrote the rules there for when you can pursue somebody in a high-speed chase. I would think that you could do something for an on-foot chase. That's what they did in Chicago. How's that working out? I have no idea. Check the homicide rate in Chicago. Because everyone knows they can run from the cops. Well, the homicide rate in Chicago is due to a whole lot of things, not to me- not the least of which is the ability to import guns from other from other states. But they but the criminals also know they're emboldened because the cops won't stop them if they run. So maybe uh, you know we just you know Philadelphia just passed. But a maybe law- that's but maybe that's a different. Forgive me for interrupting. You f- finish, then I'll ask my question. Philadelphia just passed a law that says law enforcement can't stop for minor misdemeanor traffic violations. So the predators know they can travel with impunity throughout the city without being stopped for any of the equipment violations, any of the speed violations, any of the moving violations. And we just had a mass shooting there because they know they're not going to be stopped and have the car searched for weapons. Well, we also know that the same rule was applied to Fayetteville, North Carolina, and there was a reduction in, in violent events as a result of that law as well. So it works both ways. And I would think that I certainly am not advocating that police should not chase felons with guns. That's a given. But I'm speaking to other situations where it's not so clear that there's imminent harm. Well, Jack, I will tell you, officers will do what you tell them to do. You brought up high-speed pursuits. My career started before that rule came into place. I was in a couple of high-speed pursuits that look, in retrospect, were putting my own life in danger. I was very fortunate. Um, But you write, uh, when I say you, I mean this, you know, um, not Jack, but how do you write that? How do you write that rule? Because most often you don't know why somebody's running. If, going back to your original scenario, if if that was the case, that we got called on a domestic violence, we have an in-person victim, give the description, law enforcement approaches you, and you put what I call the felony flyers on. You put your <laughs> you rabbit, okay? You take off running. Right. What do you want me to do, Jack? Based on that, I'm not sure. I don't know if you have to chase. Well, what do you want me to do? We have we have an officer with a female that just got the snot beat out of her, and we have the suspect, and he's fleeing on foot. That's a different story. No, that's pretty much same what you're saying. I mean, well, here's the thing. I don't think you can legislate out mistakes that law enforcement are going to make when the situation escalates. Obviously, we want the person apprehended. We want the person arrested. What we don't want is for it to get out of control unnecessary and, and end with an officer shooting somebody in the back of the head. That's not good for the officer. It's not good for the victim. But I don't know how you write a rule there. It's got to be training. It's got to be education. And I think we're just going to have to tolerate some mistakes. I mean, every profession has mistakes. The problem is with law enforcement, the mistakes are a lot of times life and death. Well, and the other problem is it's easy for me to sit back here and question. I mean, that's the armchair quarterback. And unfortunately... I'm not skilled enough or I'm not skilled at all in what police have to do. So while I'm able to say, man, I'm seeing faults, I'm having a hard time coming up with suggestions. But that doesn't mean to say it can't, suggestions aren't available, that there's not a better way of doing it. My sense is we have 
a status quo and that continues because it doesn't get changed very often because we're comfortable with it. Now that's intuition, not empirical evidence, but I've, I've looked at enough videos to say the system could be improved to some degree. I'm just not sure how you do it. Okay, I have a, I have a couple of responses there. First off, um, we can always be better. You could be better at your jobs, I could be better at mine, and officers can be better at their, at their jobs every day. Understand what we have to train an officer. We get a civilian off the street, we have to train them from responding to the child uh, sexual assault victim all the way to an active shooter and everything in between. And we've been talking about the in-between today. We haven't talked about the extremes. I, I, would, I would look for your affirmation here that yes, you sent me a series of videos, Patrick Leoya, it was one of, and Walter Scott, there's many others, and I sent you a laundry list. But would we agree, though, that there are literally millions of encounters by law enforcement with the citizens we don't ever talk about? Which is to say that law enforcement gets it right most of the time. They really do. Um, and so we sure. can cherry pick out these incidents, and I'm not justifying what when officers make a mistake. I'm not doing that. But we can pull these out and say, well, this could have been done better. Absolutely. The other thing I'd like to like to um, underscore here is training. So there's comparatively to beauticians and other um, in in other professions, uh, blue collar professions, uh, law enforcement uh, does not have as much training as they do by gross hours. Um, that could be improved um, in what we mandate for law enforcement training. It's a very difficult job, um, but every time we go to train, it costs money. On top of the defund the police post-George Floyd and um, the riots throughout 2020, as you may know, it's very difficult to recruit police officers right now. And um, to take, you know, as a young person, you know, coming out of high school and maybe college, um, what would motivate you to go and be a public servant and work weekends and second and third shift? And it's, and, and I can tell you now that I have more education under my belt, formal education, that to get in a police car and, and work a shift, whether you're working rurally or you're working in the inner city, it is literally master's level um, process. Sure it is. It's extremely difficult. Um, and so, um, you know, you're talking, most of the decisions law enforcement make are not split second. They are quick decisions though, sometimes. Uh, some are split seconds, for sure. Um, so it's just very, very difficult, uh, and we could we could certainly all be better at it. Uh, but I will ask you this question, and I mean this sincerely. This is not a snarky question, but I believe right now in 2022 that law enforcement's never been better. And do you think there's been a a time that there, we've had better law enforcement? We've had we have a lot more transparency now because of body cams, but in cruiser cams, but there's never been an era where it's been better. I would think that that's true just because of, um, like you said, transparency, 
training techniques, people recognizing these issues that have authority over how officers are going to be trained. But let me ask a question back. Has your uh, educational process adapted and changed with what we've seen in the last, you know, 10, 5, 10 years? Um, I don't think I understand your question. Are you still teaching the same way you did 20 years ago? Oh, well, yeah. So certainly it develops. And what what is a big game changer is the video. Um, so I, I train a lot with video, not exclusively video. I don't uh, take you back in here. I don't put the VCR tape in and walk out of the room. But um, but so the, the initial exchange I had with Jack was I sent him a lot of Sixth Circuit cases where there are videos. So in every one of those, I train um, under 1983 qualified immunity and we'll talk about that and then I'll be able to show the video from the actual Sixth Circuit case um, or I can do public records requests for state level cases. So yes, that certainly has changed and then I can pause it. But see, we say, I often say this, that making a decision under fluorescent lights is so different than making it under sunlight, moonlight, street lights, or no lights at all. So we have the ability from, the, from our classroom to pause the video, to discuss it. I mean, we're, we're, we're not in the same environment. We don't have the same smells. We don't have the same stressors. We don't, we already, I already know what the outcome is, even if the officers in the class don't. That's easy. Um, and, but it's a lot more difficult when you're actually there making the decision and you've got to control your epinephrine. You've got to control that fight or flight. You've got to, you've got to back that down. I, I'm going to answer your question as well, which is, I think policing is much better than it was in years past but you know I hate to say it that doesn't give me satisfaction I think there are enough indicator enough examples of force that is not necessary I think there are enough examples of racial bias that I think the system still has to be improved I don't mean to say I I understand how complex the job is and I understand that police officers are working from the same subconscious bias that we all are but the the issue is they're in an important position and they have the use of force and I think there has to be a determined effort to continually improve and to just not say oh we're better than we were and I think law enforcement is improving constantly Bob what efforts if any are made to uh, either vet incoming officers to be able to handle the stress of the job or to get officers that can't handle the stress out of the profession well that's uh, it's a stair-step process so um, at the very beginning um, if all three of us apply they're going to do a background check Uh, they're going to um, look at our financial history um, they're also going to look at, uh, in this modern day, of course, our social media platforms, um, all of the above. Then we will um, conduct a psychological exam. When I say we, it's done by psych professionals. Um, there's a polygraph that's involved. Um, you have to pass the polygraph to get uh, to make it through the gatekeeping system. They'll interview your neighbors. Um, you'll give references. We'll talk to them. So now you're in the academy. It's a high-stress academy. Um, sometimes for the first time ever, um, especially in this day and age. Back when we were kids, if we beefed, we typically took it to the playground, right, at recess or after school. Is that fair? Today, they use, um, they, you know, they get in a social media war where they use all caps, you know. Um, that, that's, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. We, we, train the officer, we train the recruits in boxing and ground fighting 
in Hitman where they they we have uh, instructors that dress up with a lot of padding and the, the recruits and they get in an all out fight, but the fight is to get them on the ground on their belly and handcuffed. Um, it, it's not brutal. It it's intense. Um, sometimes for most of these young people, it's the first time they've been hit in the mouth. Um, and it hurts, but you know what? You're going to live. You're going to be okay. Um, so the academy's high stress. Then at the end of that, then they will go through, um, I believe it's up to 16 weeks of field training um, where they ride with a senior officer and they are evaluated on every single run. Then after that, they are out on their own, but they're still on probation and then they're evaluated by the sergeant. So... Um, in, in, in all of that time, your worst is coming out. Whatever your worst is, uh, it's going to come out. Now, again, there can be mistakes long after that. We could see senior officers that make serious mistakes. But, uh, so that's the vetting process to answer your question directly. Well, Bob, um, I know Jack and I uh, both appreciate your role. Uh, it's nice to have somebody that's reasonable training police officers for what I believe to be a very, very dangerous uh, occupation. Uh, my thought is is that maybe more of us citizens need to have training on our obligation when we encounter officers and take a little bit more responsibility under those circumstances. But we appreciate you coming here and talking to us and teaching us some things. And you know what, Gonzo, I should have uh, said this earlier in the podcast, but Bob was kind enough to invite me to the police academy a couple years back. I got to participate in some of the uh, training exercises. Uh, Let's just say I didn't do very well. But it was a good experience, and Bob was very helpful, open. So I I really appreciated that, and I appreciate you being here today, Bob. Well, thanks for the opportunity to come in and and chat. And just back to that experience, Jack, uh, I think it would be good for the listeners to – what did you think of the scenarios? Even though – you, you, you weren't trained in them, and we I took you from A and put you in Z, but but you got to watch other recruits go through it with more training. What was your reaction? We talked a little bit about it that night, but if I could take you back for just a moment. It reminded me of my days in the military where the emphasis was always train, train, train. I see that um, there's probably... I would guess not enough training for police officers because they are required to do so many other things. The military, their job is to train all the time. So that's a deficit that you operate under. Um, I participated in three or four uh, scenarios. I witnessed only one where really the concerted effort was in down-talking or not, not down talking, but de-escalating. The other were more combat survival situations. So I'm wondering, is that representative of how much training overall police officers get in de-escalating? Overall, though, you know, I appreciate what goes on. I was appreciative of the risk. I'm appreciative that I got to partake in that. It was a good experience. Right. Yeah, and you, you came on a night when, when that was the focus. And okay. certainly that's not the focus throughout the entire academy. Yeah, I was there for four hours right. out of a six right. or eight week period. Sure. Yeah. So did somebody beat Jack up? No. no. I think we, we, they, they fell short of actually causing him any harm. I think he left with all of his faculties that he arrived. Oh, shoot. Maybe you can have him back. <laughs> we'll bring him in during boxing. 
yeah, that's what I need to have my head pounded a little more than it's already been. Okay, hey, we'll be back in a few weeks with another important legal or social uh, justice issue. Thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, uh, Eric French. Until then, so long. <laughs>